Welcome to Give Theory a Chance. In this episode, we are joined by Dr. Matthew Clare, an assistant professor of sociology and law at Stanford University. In our conversation, Matt introduces us to the work of W.E.B. Du Bois, discusses how Du Bois is one of the rare scholars who transcends sociology and the academy, and helps us understand how Du Bois's theory, relationship to sociology, and larger political projects shifted across his career. Matt also introduces us to his own research on the experience of criminal defendants to illustrate the value of a Du Boisian approach. Hi, Matt. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So we are here today to talk about W.E.B. Du Bois. Now, Du Bois is one of those names that listeners are probably familiar with, even if they haven't engaged directly with his work. But I'm hoping you could still get us going by just giving us an overview of who Du Bois was, or, or better yet, what he's actually known for. Yeah, so I think Du Bois is someone who's very well known, especially uh, for just even the everyday public. I think that's rare for a social theorist. But then in sociology, I think Du Bois is typically known for certain texts like The Philadelphia Negro, a major empirical work that he did, Souls of Black Folk, and sort of the theories that emerge from it. But a little bit about Du Bois's background that I find interesting and fascinating is uh, just sort of a little bit of his personal trajectory and I think how his personal life affected or influenced a lot of his theorizing. Um, So when I teach about Du Bois in my classical theory class here at Stanford to undergrads, I always share a little bit of background about his childhood in Great Barrington, Massachusetts, sort of him being, you know, one of very few black families in a pretty white town in the Northeast uh, and being born right after the emancipation of enslaved people in the South and three years after the Civil War and sort of what that meant, right, to be born in that social environment in that time period, but also to live in a place where not many black people lived, right? And so his black experience was a unique black experience in many ways. And, you know, seeing as Du Bois sort of transitioned into his educational trajectory and and sort of progressed educationally to go to Fisk University for college in Nashville, where there's many more black people. It's Southern. Uh, He encounters a black middle-class community as well as sort of Southern poverty and racism at the time. I think that's really formative for thinking about Du Bois's theorizing around the veil, about what the veil means, about how it affects black people differently based upon their social positions. And then I think his time at Harvard also is pretty influential, of course, when he's trained as a sociologist and and where he gets his PhD. Um, So, you know, I talk about those aspects of his life to sort of give students background into who he is and, and why he thought the way he did. Out of curiosity, so I also take that approach when I teach Du Bois and when I introduce him in social theory, but I'm wondering if when, when you teach Du Bois, do you spend more time on his biography and the historical context that he emerged from than you do with other theorists, or is that just how you approach everyone? Yeah, that that's actually a really great question. So I do that with every theorist, and by sort of the very beginning of class, like in the first class session, I talk about presuppositions with students and sort of how scholars typically come to any empirical observation that they have with prior thoughts about how the world works, about sort of the basic features of like how people act in the world, right? Whether people are typically rational actors or if they're non-rational actors, right? So they sort of have these beliefs and background sort of motivations for even why they ask certain research questions. And so in that way, I'm trying to teach students that we need to understand that these are humans who are creating these theories and that their human experiences, whether it's in their personal biography or even in their intellectual socialization, what schools they went to, where they were trained, affects the way they theorize about the social world. And in particular, it's sort of modern social theory class. So classics of modern social theory is the title. So 
Um, we talk specifically about sort of the moment of modernity. We don't really talk too much about contemporary sociological theorists. So we talk about industrial capitalism and colonialism uh, and racism in the modern moment. As you've mentioned, Du Bois is one of these people whose name and work extends beyond the walls of academia. But I'm wondering if, uh, considering within academia, so you're a scholar who writes across sociology, legal studies, criminal justice. Do you get a sense that Du Bois has influence in all of those areas? Or is it rather that he has uh, influence within particular spots in sociology? Yeah, so I think outside of sociology, people read Du Bois much more than sociologists think. And I think maybe relative to sociologists, probably more. Uh, So, you know, in African-American studies, in research on the black radical tradition, Du Bois is foundational. Critical race theorists read Du Bois. I think even thinking sort of about the concept of racial capitalism, which I think is infused within sociology. But we can think about the racial capitalism of Du Bois, and we can also think about what's more commonly thought of as the racial capitalism of Cedric Robinson. And those are two different perspectives on thinking about what racial capitalism was and is. Um, And so I think across legal studies and critical race theory in particular, in African and African-American studies, Du Bois is much more canonized and talked about and and used in influencing contemporary discourse and research more so even than in sociology. But of course, I think it's changing in sociology. No doubt, right? Yeah. It's changing with Alden Morris's presidential address this past year on emancipatory sociology, which drew very deeply on the Du Boisian tradition. The Du Boisian Scholars Network, which I went to a conference that was held at Brown, I think in 2019, I think maybe it was the second year of the Du Boisian Scholars Network. But one thing that actually really intrigues me, I think, about Du Bois and debates about canonization within sociology is that Du Bois is just so much more expansive than sociology and like is so influential in other disciplines, but even outside of the academy. So I polled students this time this year when I'm teaching the classics of modern social theory class, I polled all of my students, I have about 50 some odd students in the class. And I said, which theorist are you most excited to learn about between Marx, Weber, Durkheim, and Du Bois? And I think 68% of the students chose Du Bois, Marx was second with like 20% or something of the vote. And I said, wow. Who, who, was, in, who was in last place? I think it was Weber. Okay. <laughs> uh, but I think they were probably just people who were like, I don't know who either Durkheim or Weber are. Right? Yeah, um, yeah. But what that, I asked a student, I said, does anyone want to share sort of why they're so excited to learn about Du Bois? And one of the students who raised their hand said, well, honestly, Professor Claire, I actually just know more about Du Bois. I actually read Du Bois in high school. I have a sense of, uh, you know, souls of black folk, and I'm excited to get sort of a more structured sociological read of souls of black folk and how his theories influence sociological research today. And so I think just thinking about infusion of sociology within high school curricula or the general public. I think Du Bois is fantastic and Du Bois just wrote so prolifically and wrote in ways that could be interpreted and understood by general audiences as well as by sociologists. And I think that expansiveness of Du Bois is both a strength, but I also think it has unfortunately been a weakness for people who are I guess, like at the gates of the discipline, right? And doing the gatekeeping work of like, who should be canonized in sociology or not. This so directly speaks to the quality of the, the way that Du Bois writes and the accessibility of, of the, how he presents those ideas. Because as much as I'd like to advocate for it, I can't imagine high school giving a middle schooler Marx or Weber <laughs> or Durkheim, right? One of those other people that you listed 
it would be not to be too blunt, but it'd be awful, right? I wouldn't have wanted to have those texts when I when I was that age. <laughs> so again, this is this this does speak to the possibility and the way that complex theory can still be presented in something that has emotional resonance. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think with Marx, maybe there's like some, you know, maybe if you were signed Communist Manifesto. Yeah, yeah, like guiding through a few But uh, the politics around that, you know, as much as we're talking about sort of the politics around critical race theory these days at the national level where, you know, Republicans are really talking a lot about it at parent-teacher conferences or they don't even know what it is, but they know they don't like it. I don't know if Du Bois is read as a critical race theorist by these people who are talking about critical race theory at the high school level, but I could imagine also what... Uh, they would think about Marx being on their 17-year-old's syllabi. That is a, a very good reminder and uh, depressing point. <laughs> um, but when did you when did you first read Du Bois? So I, I'm pretty sure for myself, I don't think I actually encountered his writing until I was a senior in college. Um, did, did you have an awareness at an earlier age? Yeah, for me, it was probably middle school and certainly by high school. So um, my parents raised me in Nashville, so I'm Southern and Black and grew up in a very white community in a suburb of Nashville. I went to an all boys private school, very white school. And I think for me, you know, just talking to my parents about being Black and middle class in the South and going to these schools and my parents had had a lot of experience also going to majority white institutions throughout their lives. Honestly, Souls of Black Folk was like, not a Bible, but like kind of, yeah. uh, you know, it was a yeah. wonderful way to see that this experience is not my own or just my family's. This is a common experience for people who are racialized as black in the United States. And it's an experience that's been happening for a long time for a lot of black people in the U.S. Um, and so uh, I think Souls of Black Folk was definitely my first encounter. I don't think I read anything else, though, of Du Bois um, in middle or high school. I don't think my parents had other texts so I think, though, my first real deep encounter with Du Bois, other than sort of like reading him as an escape, finding his writing really interesting and finding his personal narrative in Souls of Black Folk really resonant with my own, was in graduate school, I was seeking out Du Bois because I think when I was in graduate school, it was a time where people were increasingly talking about Du Bois as a sociologist. And I was like, what? Du Bois is a sociologist? I didn't even know yeah. that, right? Like, yeah. I had no clue that he was a sociologist until graduate school. Was your undergraduate degree also in sociology? So it wasn't. It was in political okay. science. Okay. And yeah, so, you know, I took a lot of classes with Larry Bobo at Harvard. And so, like, if I were a critical reader and, and really deeply paid attention to my undergrad classes, I probably would have <laughs> realized that some of the scholars that we were reading were citing Du Bois in the text. Yeah. And, you know, I think Bobo in particular is a Du Boisian scholar of the first rate and is really fantastic in thinking about Du Bois's legacy with respect to thinking about survey style research. But, you know, I didn't really have conversations about Du Bois as a sociologist until I was in graduate school. And so part of this also came around when I had to teach sociological theory. Um, so at Harvard, the teaching fellows actually teach the sociological theory class to undergrads. And so it was an opportunity for me to try to get Du Bois on the syllabus and figure out what should we be reading if we're going to be reading Du Bois. And it was hard to figure it out. And it was me going to the Boisian Scholars Network and having conversations with other scholars. It was me reading people who had really drawn deeply on Du Bois in their work to see what texts they found meaningful and useful in contemporary conversations around theory. 
when you rediscovered Du Bois or when you started engaging with his work in grad school, is that when you moved beyond Souls of Black Folk, right? Because that was your first encounter with Du Bois. So when you came back to him, is that when you started searching out for other ideas and uh, that he had and other work that he published? Yeah. And, you know, I think that move is always happening. I think Du Bois has written just so much that I'm always finding new things to read. Um, like, uh, you know, The World in Africa, for example, was something that I, and I think that's the title, actually, I don't quite remember. This is something that I read like a year ago, most recently, and, and something that I hadn't even known that Du Bois had written about, or The Gift of Black Folk. I hadn't even known Du Bois had written this text, where he sort of goes through historically the various contributions of Black people in the United States. Sort of the text that I found in graduate school that I found sort of very anchoring and that I teach um, when I teach to undergrads would be Parts of Black Reconstruction in America, uh, Souls of Black Folk, of course, Souls of White Folk, too, um, an essay that he wrote that is sometimes lopped onto Souls of Black Folk, like some editions or versions of it have it at, sort of at the end. And those are sort of the main texts. I actually don't teach the Philadelphia Negro, and we could talk about why, but um, you know, I think it is a great empirical text in many ways, um, but I actually think theoretically I find more uh, sort of innovation and interest coming from souls, sort of seeing the Du Bois at the micro level, and then from Black Reconstruction, seeing Du Bois as really a neo-Marxist and adding race and racialization as an important consideration when we talk about capitalism. All right, that's, that's actually a really good transition to uh, what I was hoping my next question would be, which is when you picked up, the, when you picked up and started reading Du Bois again in grad school, what were those ideas that were valuable to you as a researcher? So rather than that experience at a younger age when you're reading Du Bois where he had value to you as a, a person, as a human in the world, now you're looking at his ideas as something, well, you're going to produce knowledge. So what were those things that stuck with you this time rather than the previous time? Yeah. So, you know, I'm trained as a cultural sociologist. I'm interested in studying race and class inequality about the cultural level with respect to people's interactions with respect to the meaning that they make about the world um, and how culture can potentially reproduce inequality, but also potentially challenge it. So, you know, my work looks specifically at the legal system and culture and race and class inequality in the legal system. And as I'm unpacking and trying to understand sort of these dynamics, I think that Du Bois has been sort of a natural reference for me, especially sort of the earlier Du Bois that we see in Souls. And I think that this sort of micro level Du Bois who's interested in understanding group level subjective realities and experiences and how they emerge from structural realities of inequality, but also how they potentially could be used in the effort to contest inequality. Um, I think Du Bois is like the perfect theorist to think through with these ideas in cultural sociology. And I don't think many people think of Du Bois as a cultural sociologist, but I very much see his work as resonant with a lot of cultural sociological research. So that's sort of how he's influenced my current work beyond sort of the other things that influence me generally as I think about theory. That's how he sort of motivates the work that I do today. This is a little bit of an abstract question, but it's one I'm always, I'm always really curious how people answer it. So what is it that you do with the, with the ideas, with, with Du Bois as a theorist? Is it that as you're engaging in your own research, he's this influential figure who is always kind of always already there, right? He shapes how you ask the questions. He shapes what you're looking at. 
or is it, or are you actually engaging directly with his ideas and saying, I'm going to take Du Bois and I'm going to bring the way he wrote about the world and this framework into the contemporary moment and I'm going to see what works and I'm also going to see what doesn't work. Or, or maybe there's something else, but I'm just curious, what do you do when there's a figure that's so foundational uh, to your own development? Yeah, I often read uh, and, and teach students Gabriel Abend's piece on the multiple types of theory, right? Where theory one, theory two, the theory seven, and they're different ways of doing theory. And for me, when I draw on Du Bois, I am trying to sort of see how Du Bois's concepts are or maybe are not relevant to contemporary sociological questions today. And so for me, someone who studies the criminal legal system and who is particularly interested in this recent era of what I refer to as mass criminalization or this massive rise, not just in incarceration, but beyond the prison, this massive rise of carceral and punitive legal techniques that control marginalized groups and also extract resources from them. How can we understand this as like a central feature of racism in the contemporary moment? Um, and so for Du Bois, you know, he's interested broadly in racialized subjectivity. And I think Jose Itzigzon and Carita Brown's research and, and sort of resurrection, if you will, of Du Boisian theory and methods with respect to his theory of racialized subjectivity has been really influential in my thinking. So I'm not just drawing on Du Bois in my reading of Du Bois, but I'm also drawing on secondary readings of Du Bois, which I think is also the way that I do theory. And I think is a really fruitful way to do theory because you're engaging with people who've also thought about the contemporary ways that Du Bois might matter. And so what I'm doing is I'm pushing and thinking specifically in a new paper that just came out in Du Bois Review titled Criminalized Subjectivity, um, I'm thinking about how we cannot understand criminalization and mass criminalization without understanding how it has influenced the subjective racial order and how it is central to the subjective racial order. And so I define criminalized subjectivity as drawing on Du Bois' racialized subjectivity, which he and also Brown and, and Itzigzon have sort of thought of as being a tripartite theory. And I'll talk about that in a minute, if, if that's interesting. For sure, definitely. So basically, I'm defining criminalized subjectivity as what I refer to as the unique understandings and visions that are attendant to being a person or part of a community that's routinely subject to legal control and exploitation sanctioned by the criminal law. And whiteness and white supremacy and racism are central to this subjectivity. And I, in the paper, I illustrate that through empirical analysis of interviews with people from various racial backgrounds um, who have been criminalized to show how whiteness, aspirations of whiteness, and desires to be sort of on what I refer to as the non-criminalized side of the veil immensely affect people's understandings of their positionality, understandings of whether they are or are not criminalized, and then also their feelings about the possibilities of changing the legal system, whether they personally feel like they should just conform and comport to the state's vision of what it means to be a disciplined, good citizen, or whether they should resist and really lead to transformation of what the legal system looks like. And that has so much to do uh, with racism in the United States. And without a Du Boisian perspective, you would miss that. Not to go too far down that methodological path, but I am curious, how did you find the people to participate in your study? So I know you said you're, you're interested in people who had their experiences shaped by the legal system. 
how did you find who you would actually interview? Yeah, so the paper in Du Bois Review actually draws on a subsample of people from my broader work, which emerged from my dissertation research and which um, is in my book, Privilege and Punishment, How Race and Class Matter in Criminal Court. And so in that research, I generally was interested in trying to speak to and select a race and class diverse sample of people who had been arraigned and processed in criminal courts in Boston. So in order to do that, I had two sort of arrest lists or logs. Um, so that for uh, 2014, I believe, was the year in Boston and Cambridge police departments. They put their arrest logs online. So you can see everyone who's been arrested. So I just literally sent letters uh, to recruit a sample of people. And so because I had the universe of people in my sampling frame who had been arrested, I hoped that it would mean that I could get people, not just people who are basically the, the types of people who we typically have when we talk to people who are defendants, so poor people, working class people, but also people who are middle class may have been arrested only once. Um, and so I was able to get a really diverse sample of people that way. And also I embedded in a public defender's office and recruited some people that way too. Um, so that's sort of how I went forward with getting a sample of people who had some interaction with the criminal legal system. And now the variation is, is wide. Some people had been arrested repeatedly in their lives. Other people, they had only been arrested once in 2014. And it was really a random blemish in their life of generally abiding by the law. And so I got to see people who were along various dimensions of what I refer to as being behind the veil of criminalization. Some who really sort of felt that they were constantly and routinely criminalized, and then other people who uh, felt that, you know, this was just a one-off event, you know, an arrest for a DUI, and I'm not really part of this group of criminalized people. Just to clarify, and I think this is important, so when they were listing people's names, they also included the address or you took the name and then looked up the address of people? Yeah. So the address is often included in arrest logs. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. Which is uh, an unfortunate reality. If you're interested more in sort of how ridiculous our criminal legal system is with respect to sharing people's information, Sarah Esther Logason has a fantastic book that really sort of unpacks how terrible it can be to not only be arrested, but also have any kind of criminal record and try to get it scrubbed from being available online. I'm glad you mentioned that book. Sarah's a friend of mine. She was actually the co-host oh. of, of, of my Methods podcast that I had before this. Um, so I do recommend, I agree with you, it's a, it's a book yeah, that's worth fantastic. checking out. Um, the other thing I would say is for people who are listening to this podcast and did not check out the show page um, of, of this episode, I am including a link to the article that you're discussing. So if people want to check out and see more of the details, just follow along as you're talking through these ideas, that, that is possible. Um, but I am wondering, so you mentioned before the tripartite model that you were employing in the article. Would you be able to explain that a little bit more or maybe even walk us through that concept? Yeah. So, you know, I think like most classical theorists, honestly, I just uh, spent some time yesterday teaching Marx and we were talking about historical materialism and students were like, where exactly does he say I'm a historical materialist? And I'm like, does he ever really? <laughs> um, and so, you know, there's Ingalls, you know, talks about historical materialism a little bit and sort of letters that he's written later on after Marx has died. And there are parts where Marx is explicitly talking about himself being a materialist, right? And writing in reference to Hegel's idealism. But I think in Du Bois, we get a similar thing where basically I think later interpretations of Du Bois's work help to really unpack specific and precise concepts that might be a little bit latent um, or implicit, if you will, in, in the text. 
And so anyway, I think uh, Brown in Itzigzon, um, they have a paper, I think it's in Du Bois Review, and they also have their book, The Sociology of W.E.B. Du Bois, um, Racialized Modernity and the Global Color Line. They do a really wonderful job of isolating three aspects of that are foundational to Du Bois's theory of racialized subjectivity. So, so I'll tell you what those are, and I'll tell you sort of how I, I think about them. That, that definitely works. So one is the veil. Another concept is Tunis, which I sometimes see as double consciousness, but I think Tunis is also a phrase that Du Bois uses. And then the other is second sight, which um, you could actually really miss, I think, in Souls of Black Folk. Uh, by the way, all of these concepts are in Souls of Black Folk. And you could really miss second sight in Souls of Black Folk, but I think when you read Souls of Black Folk with the gift of uh, Black Folk and paired with some of his other sort of studies that he was doing at the Atlanta um, School of Sociology, where he was publishing reports annually with graduate students at the time, I think that's where you can really build up his uh, last component of Second Sight. I am glad you're saying that. Uh, I have to confess, when I teach Du Bois in social theory, that is not the concept that I emphasize. So uh, good motivation for me to do things better as well. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, in the paper, I definitely, like, I draw on Brown and Ixigzen's work, which is so, it's anchoring and so foundational for me. But I also sort of pull out in my own readings, like, where I see Second Sight operating. So, yeah, you could see it in the paper, but we could have more conversations about the possibility of talking about where Second Sight is in the, his texts. But, you know, the veil, I think, is like a common concept that people have heard of. And so that's like one of the main parts of the tripartite theory, the first part. And I define it as sort of a metaphor for the boundaries, both symbolic and social between black people and white people. Um, And the veil matters because uh, this boundary is sometimes referred to as a two-way mirror, right? So black people are on one side and they can see beyond the veil and within it. Whereas white people are on the other side, outside the veil, and they can only see distorted images of who's behind the veil. So they can't really understand and see the true nature, if you will, of blackness, the black community, black people. But black people are quite aware of white people and their true nature, as well as of themselves. And because there's a boundary, right, uh, there's a separation, meaning that Du Bois talks about this in various parts of Soul's um, meaning that, you know, there's not much inter-exchange, there's not much uh, mutual recognition, things like that. And then Tunis, he sort of defines as a state where Black people, because of the veil, often hold conflicting perspectives from these two different worlds. So the Black world and the white world. So the response to the veil can range from efforts at assimilation, or what he refers to as hypocritical compromise, to self-assertion and rebellion. And he argues that this state of Tunis and sort of the way it manifests depends on uh, people's varying intersecting social positions. So not just their blackness, but also, you know, whether they're living in the North or the South, whether they um, are men or women and in their class positions as well. And their educational status in particular is really important. And then the last concept of second sight, this is what he refers to very briefly in Souls as the gift of being able to see beyond the veil. But like I said, I think it's developed in other parts of his work. Um, And I see it, second sight, as uh, constituting the ideas and strategies that Black people indigenously create for contesting racism. And so if we are to study second sight, we need to center, and this is kind of standpoint theory generally, We need to center the voices of those who are not just black, but also most marginalized by racism 
and other intersecting systems of oppression. Okay, so then in the article, you take each of those three concepts and explore how they can help us better understand the experiences of the people who participate in your study. Is, is that right? Yeah, so that's exactly right. So I sort of like transpose, if you will, these concepts to the condition of criminalized subjectivity, which is thoroughly racialized today for Black, Indigenous, and Latinx people in particular. And I talk about how existing amazing ethnographic, interview-based, quantitative even research across the social sciences and criminology and sociology and even in psychology, studying people who are subordinated by the criminal law reveals aspects of these three concepts, but doesn't talk about them. And I think that if we use these concepts and overlay them for empirical realities that various scholars are observing, we get a much more comprehensive understanding of the dynamics of being someone who's criminalized in the United States today and the possibilities of also changing and resisting unjust criminal legal practices. Would you be willing to spend a little bit more time on this? And I'm wondering if you could take each of those three concepts and give us an example from your research because I think it would help students understand it. And for selfish reasons, it would help me understand those concepts better. And then I also think these are really good examples of what you can do with, with social theory and with those concepts that are presented to us in a classic text. Yeah, sure. So, you know, I think the veil, off the top of my head, I'm not going to be able to think of specific uh, papers. Yeah, yeah, you don't you don't need exact quotes or citations. Because I don't want to name some people and not name others because I really am influenced by so many people's wonderful work. But I think the veil, you know, we see that metaphor, first of all, structurally, we see that with the prison, the prison wall and boundaries, right, that are separating literally, physically, people who are criminalized from the non-criminalized quote-unquote world. But we also see the veil operating when people are outside the prison. So when they're trying to get benefits, right, their criminal record affects that and they realize there's a veil between me and the non-criminalized world. I can't get certain benefits. I can't get housing. I can't get employment um, because of my criminal record. Um, so I think that is where we see the veil operating, both as a, as a metaphor, symbolically, if you will, but also in a very strong uh, structuring way. Tunis, I see in a lot of research on policing in particular and how people feel about policing, where there's often sort of, and there are some studies that show some people react with legal cynicism. They feel like police are ill-equipped. Uh, to be able to help them and to prevent violence. Whereas other people who may live in, in criminalized communities may feel like they need to call police and they do call police. And I'm going to, to really work hard not to mention specific people, but I'm gonna go ahead. Uh, I think Monica Bell's work here is really fantastic, really showing uh, the situational nature of trust in police um, and how that emerges from uh, real structural realities where people sort of do, they hold conflicting perspectives right, about how they feel about their own community and the unjust criminalization that they feel, but also recognize the need to draw on state resources in some situations um, and for certain reasons. And that's a real conflict that people have, and a lot of scholars show this conflict and frustration between people who are in communities where they're highly policed. But also I think we see this too in um, some of uh, Vesla Weaver's and Amy Lerman's work where we see, you know, their concept of custodial citizens. We see how people often who are criminalized blame themselves for their criminalization 
Um, and so I think this sort of like internalizing of dominant norms and feeling like, yeah, I did something wrong. I'm a bad person, or it's really my fault rather than this is a system that structurally is problematic. It's really common. I think in the literature among people who are racially and economically marginalized custodial citizens, and maybe a little bit less common among people who are more educated. Um, so we can see here sort of Du Bois also his articulation that Tunis really it's not the same Tunis for everyone, but it also depends on what your intersecting social positions are. And then with respect to second sight or changing the system, this is actually where I do most of the work in the paper, sort of adding and innovating and thinking about how I would push Du Bois. So, you know, I think the term second sight is actually a quite static term. It's kind of like, this is an attitude, right? Whereas I think second sight should be thought of as more dynamic. And in some of Du Bois's work, it is thought of as more dynamic. I think it's a process. And I think it's something where people are constantly negotiating, contesting, and working toward a future of how the legal system could be better. And so I define it, I think, specifically as a social process whereby criminalized people and communities imagine and build alternative futures within and beyond the current legal system. And I refer to that as legal envisioning. For me, I think this is actually where the existing research is lightest. I don't think there's as much work that's systematically trying to investigate what the legal envisioning of criminalized people and communities is. And so in the paper, uh, that's really the root of my empirical analysis with the interview data is I'm trying to see like what is the legal envisioning of people who come from a range of backgrounds but are all criminalized and exist on the criminalized side of the veil. So what I do is I draw on data from the interview where I ask people specifically, um, and I'm blanking on the exact question that I asked, um, but basically, if you could change the criminal legal system, how would you change it? So it was a really broad question that I asked, and I only did it actually later on. I didn't ask that question of everyone I interviewed, but there was a point in the research process where I was like, I actually want to know, like, yeah. you know, these people seem probably have unique experiences of the system, or the unique insight, rather, into the system. Their experiences are not unique. Their experiences are quite common to people who experience the system. What do they think? How do they think they should change it? And that question actually really provided a lot of interesting insight into people's legal envisioning, how it, the variation, the range of variation of people's legal envisioning, and trying to help me also try to use Du Bois or learn how to use Du Bois to explain why some people were more what I refer to as reformist in their legal envisioning, and other people were more what I refer to as abolitionist in their legal envisioning. You've, you've mentioned a number of contemporary scholars who draw on the ideas of Du Bois and also extend them in their own work. I'm wondering if there are any other classical theorists that you find yourself using in conjunction with Du Bois or that you think he works particularly well with? Yeah, so I think actually uh, with respect to the later Du Bois, if you will, as I sometimes describe him to my students, the Du Bois who is the communist, who you know is super radical, who's given up on sociology as a discipline because it's just not leading to actual change, that Du Bois is the Du Bois of Black Reconstruction. And that Du Bois is the neo-Marxist Du Bois who I think pairs really well with reading Marx and giving a good, strong analysis of how race, specifically blackness versus whiteness, matters in the U.S. context um, with respect to struggles within and, and between the working class. So I really, you know, his concept of symbolic wages of whiteness, I really love reading Du Bois in relation to Marx with students. I also think that, and I'm not as 
uh, deep of a reader of, you know, George Herbert Mead's work and other people who are interested in the self and identity and identity processes. But my understanding is uh, many Du Boisian scholars also think that and read Du Bois in relation to at least the earlier Du Bois of Souls of Black Folk in relation to George Herbert Mead, William James, and others. So I think that could be fruitful. I don't really do that when I teach Du Bois, but I think it could be fruitful to see like what is Mead missing um, with respect to how the self is formed under conditions of racialized modernity. Oh, and uh, earlier you mentioned that you do not draw on, uh, you don't draw on the Philadelphia Negro to the same degree as you do his other work because you don't find his, his theorizing in that book to be as, as fruitful. Um, would you, since I have you here, <laughs> would you be willing to explain that? Yeah, you know, I see the Philadelphia Negro as a very early Du Bois who is committed to the empirical social scientific enterprise. He is bringing us and influencing us, or at least American sociologists at the time, to think maybe statistics matter. Maybe we should actually, you know, understand real, true, objective realities about populations. You know, he's coming from Germany, I think, around that time, where he's really influenced with interactions with German sociologists, like in Germans who were in the German Historical School of Economics, uh, who were really interested in empirical methods of all sorts, not just statistics, but also qualitative research. Um, and so I just see that personally as a Du Bois who's an empirical Du Bois, not that you can't do empirical work that then has theoretical implications, but I think it's just easier for many of my undergraduate students to see the theoretical work happening in souls and in Black Reconstruction, especially when you read Black Reconstruction in relation to Marx, than it is really necessarily with the Philadelphia Negro. So I guess all this to say is I think you could totally read the Philadelphia Negro in a theory class, but if you're limited on time, uh, which is typically the case, I would prioritize souls and Black Reconstruction. You have already done a bunch of this, but this might be a good chance to kind of bring it all together. And uh, it's a nice way to wrap up the podcast. Imagining you are in a, a giant room in front of a bunch of sociology professors, fellow academics, grad students, undergraduates, people who are just interested in these ideas. How would you tell them or, or what would you say is the reason that we should engage with Du Bois? And not just on this more shallow or superficial level, but actually engaging in the work that W.E.B. Du Bois produced. Uh, and he produced a lot of work. So why, why engage with all that big body of literature? So I would sell Du Bois in two ways. I like this. I feel like you should have a poster yeah, yeah. or a presentation. I'm behind so you. ready for it. Yeah, this yeah is like sign the, me up for, you know, I'll be at a booth at ASA selling Du Bois. This is, this is why you should buy Du Bois' work. It's the sociology shark tank, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. First. Uh, so first is understanding racism. I think Du Bois provides a necessary and essential critique of the uh, structuring power of racism and structuring the modern world. So like the moment of modernity, but also our contemporary world. And so any analysis of racism, I think, needs to and, and would really benefit from taking into account Du Bois's thinking. And then the second would be in this moment specifically of political crisis, but I think generally, and I think many sociologists got into sociology because they care about changing the world, but I think more than just, you know, reading, what is it, the 11th thesis of Fairbach, Marx's, you know, changing the world. But I think also reading Du Bois's entire oeuvre with respect to how he moved from really invested in empirical social scientific research to 
still caring about it and recognizing the importance of objective reality, but also realizing that that wasn't enough. And reading and seeing Du Bois's transition to being much more politically engaged, joining the Communist Party, being an activist, joining Pan-African movements around the world, eventually moving to Ghana, where he, where he uh, dies, and really supporting anti-colonial struggles and the value of that and supporting that as sociologists as much as we can, but also encouraging our students to understand that just because you have certain presuppositions or political commitments doesn't mean you can't do rigorous social scientific research and then also try as best as you can to use that rigorous social scientific research to, again, promote more normative causes and agendas. And I think there should be a separation. And I think Du Bois thinks there should be a separation because he saw how normative politics could influence if you have the bad normative politics that some might agree, at least I would, of like white supremacy, for example, that could influence. And Du Bois saw this in his time, how that influenced the social scientific enterprise during his period, especially in the Chicago school and others who he was engaging with and debating with. But I also think while you should separate those things in the collection of data and the analysis, once you have the empirical reality and truth, finding a way to pair that with your moral and political commitments and lead to a more progressive, healthy society for everyone, I think is essential. And Du Bois gives us that, that ability. That, that is a great answer. Uh, I'm at least sold. <laughs> All right, awesome. <laughs> But um, no, seriously, though, this was a a really fun conversation. I enjoyed it. Thank you again for taking the time to join us. Thank you for uh, your research and your talk. Awesome. Well, thanks again for having me. Appreciation goes to Jeffrey Gilbert for providing theme music, SUNY Brockport for providing financial support, and most importantly, on behalf of me, Kyle Green, thank you for giving theory a chance. (laughs) 